0: In this episode, we pull together the exposition of the information of the previous episodes to answer the question that Mark Elvin poses, namely why China, after its tremendous revolution in science and technology and economic advancement prior to the 14th century, did not maintain its pace and entered a phase of what Joseph Needham calls homeostasis. And therefore, why it also did not launch the Industrial Revolution. And this is what we look at in this episode. Mark Ellen first dismisses some common Hypotheses that are trying to address the Needham question of the relative decline of China or its homeostasis, and in particular, there are four common hypotheses that he dismisses, which he finds to be wanting. First, China. ...had insufficient amount of capital and limited markets, and therefore that prevented it from progressing economically. As we have seen, that there is sufficient evidence that markets were extremely well-functioning and rather extensive in China. And in particular, the cotton industry was highly commercialized with well-integrated markets and the national transport system, in terms of its waterways, was also well-organized. In addition, there was enough capital, however, it was just not allocated to finance inventions. So therefore, this first hypothesis of the roots of the high-level equilibrium trap is dismissed. The second hypothesis is that political economy factors, such as uh, sub-optimal political organization and economic management, were uh, inhibiting economic growth. And one related factor is a common hypothesis that the uh, business people and entrepreneurs and merchants in China were on uh, no, if you like, well-integrated part into Chinese society, but rather were ostracized and uh, seen as outcasts. While this may have been true, at some certain points in Chinese history, uh, Mark Evan points out that, in fact, during the that time, Uh, following the 14th century uh, business people and officials and gentry were rather closely intertwined uh, in the sense that the officials were doing business and business people were obtaining the certificates of imperial examinations uh, so to enter uh, the Bureaucracy, as well as the national and uh, local management and administration. And Evan describes this as a system of, quote, symbio- symbiosis between bureaucrats and businessmen, unquote. And the power and political influence of business people and merchants was growing. They were not outcasts. And Evan is pointing towards the role of guilds or trade associations and confederations that were later morphing into some form of municipal governments. And these were providing a lot of social services uh, and therefore were of high standing in the communities in which they served. And commerce and land ownership both were important for social positions and power. And land ownership over time declined in its importance and commerce became more important as a source of power. And that is, if you like, the dismissal of the third hypothesis, of the second hypothesis that Elvin is dismissing. The third hypothesis that tries to root the lack of continued economic superiority in China is attributing it to the relatively small scale of enterprises in China and concomitantly and relatedly the lack of uh, commercial law in China and Elvin. Admits that there is no proper codified law or no proper commercial law in China, which does inhibit the growth of enterprises. However, uh, Elvin suggests also that this lack of uh, commercial law and rationalization was at least somewhat overcome by uh, interpersonal relationships and not just Guanxi, but also trust based networks that fueled and oiled uh, commercial activity. And second, so-called associations with inter-county branches, uh, highlighting a certain form of size of uh, enterprise, so that these enterprises existing in China at the time were not just small scale. And Elvin also mentions the Shanxi, a banking system, and its innovation that suggested rather not just localized, but also a larger scale of uh, enterprise activity. Now, the fourth hypothesis that Mark Evan is dismissing as an explanation for the lack of an industrial revolution to take place first in China is the hypothesis that there is no science and uh, lack of inventions all around in China uh, following the 14th century. And it is true, uh, Mark Evan is suggesting, and this is also highlighted by uh, Needham, Joseph Needham, that there is no Galilean-Newtonian science in China at the time. Some people describe it as being related to the shift from Taoism to Confucianism, where Taoism might have been related more to the investigation of natural empirical phenomena. Um, But Elvin is suggesting that This, the more important factor uh, was that the lack of basic scientific knowledge was not a problem Um, he suggested there's a lot of potential technological improvement that was possible but the technological improvements while they were possible so the scientific base was there they were not being invented he suggests that quote In most fields, agricultural agricultural production being the chief exception, Chinese technology stopped progressing well before the point at which a lack of basic scientific knowledge had become a serious obstacle." So he suggests that the European focus on tinkering and improving uh, on the margin uh, did not exist In China at the time but this is not due to a lack of uh, basic research and basic scientific knowledge um, but rather the economics of technology which we come to next and which forms the basis of Elvin's explanation of the reasons of the high equilibrium trap that China finds itself in on the eve of the Industrial Revolution. Mark Elvin is suggesting that the high-level equilibrium trap is best explained by the economics of technology and here I would like to offer a certain interpretation of uh, his argument. So Elvin is suggesting that, quote, rational short-run considerations were behind many or most of the choices of technique, unquote, by individuals. And what he means here is that the peasants and merchants, the farmers and the traders, were focusing on production techniques that seemed to be economically rational. and. I would like to highlight here that these were rational, first, in the short run, and second, rational also from a microeconomic perspective, from a business perspective, from a household's perspective, rather than being macroeconomically rational in terms of economic development. Economics if technology asks the following question. Quote How does the availability of resources, capital and labor, affect the decisions of Chinese entrepreneurs in the late traditional period? Unquote. And here it should be emphasized that there is a stress in this question on individual choice and this is opposed to considerations of the community or the government or the state rather than it is focused on the individual second it should be emphasized that this question also has a certain restriction because it is focused on short-run thinking rather than long-term thinking and third the question in which it is posed by Mark Elvin is focused on microeconomically rational consideration rather than politically macro economic or long-term rational decisions so when asking the question on whether or not a particular choice of production technique and the so-called incentives for innovation existed or not one needs to be aware that the choice of words sometimes may be not perfectly comprehensive of laying out all the possibilities in which one can ask the same question. Specifically the focus here is on the the individual, the short-run and the microeconomic rather than the macroeconomic and we will see that uh, this type of choice allows us to see an opening up of this question towards a solution that was later addressed in the 20th century via the national sovereign developmental state and big push industrialization that changed the incentives and the choice of technique by adapting the macro setting of the economy by changing the relative factor abundance via a developmental approach. The argument of the economics of technology is the argument that is trying to explain why China finds itself in a high-level equilibrium trap. And in terms of technology, one can separate scientific invention from innovation and diffusion. And according to Mark Elvin, he suggests that inventions of, say, new machines or methods can occur prior to any and without any economic incentive. And this is so-called basic research. Basic research that leads to new inventions. However, it is suggested that for the inventions to be applied and then lead to business innovation and then this innovation to be adopted and diffused to other enterprises, that requires economic incentives. Now, he suggests the following. He says, quote, In late traditional China, economic forces developed in such a way as to make profitable invention more and more difficult, However, this description of economic forces is too abstract and would suggest that economic forces are forces of nature that cannot be molded and cannot be adapted or managed or governed it can be noted that left to their own devices in a laissez-faire style this is perhaps not just a description of the Problem, but also it is a analysis of what the problem is that allows uh, policymakers or the state to fix it. So, if you describe economic forces that develop in such a way as to make profitable invention more and more difficult, you can rephrase that statement. To suggest that economic forces were allowed to be developed in such a way to make profitable invention more and more difficult, which would suggest that the, uh, the over reliance and the uninhibited microeconomically rational economic forces led to a developmentally irrational outcome. So if you look at only the factor prices, the relatively inexpensive labor relative to capital and relative to resources, it meant that, according to Elvin, quote, the rational strategy for peasants and merchant alike tended in the direction not so much of labor-saving machinery, but rather towards economizing on resources and fixed capital. Again, what needs to be added here is that the strategy is rational for peasants and merchant. It is microeconomically rational from a business perspective as well as for the perspective of the individual farm unit, but not necessarily for the class as a whole nor for the country as a whole. Therefore, these economic forces are working within a framework and this framework is not unchangeable it is not fixed and given but it can be adapted and what it suggests is that the forces if one zooms out from the current situation that china finds itself in On the eve of the Industrial Revolution it could be changed by for instance uh, not just geographic fortune such as access to coal as in the north of England but also by certain policies of the state such as overseas conquest or foreign trade uh, both of which was not undertaken by the Chinese Empire at that time under the Ming. And it suggests that these economics of technology are not fixed but can be adapted and are impacted by not just all, not just the institutions that Mark Elvin also goes into by suggesting that there was this barrier between the markets commerce trade on the one hand and production and technology on the other with the decline of serfdom and the removal of the uh, master uh, over the serfs who he previously was supervising so besides institutions what needs to be also borne in mind is the relevance of state policy in, in regards to Uh, development, uh, including uh, industrial development as well as foreign trade. Elvin further points out that the high level of development allowed China to continue raising its economic output. He suggests that quote, huge but nearly static markets created no bottlenecks in the production system that might have prompted creativity. When temporary shortages arose, mercantile versatility based on cheap water transport was a faster and surer remedy than the contrivance, meaning invention of machines." Unquote. So by this it is suggested that the advancement and Uh, the high level of civilization and economic development of China allowed these problems of a lack of further technological innovation and shortages of resources and land to be not necessarily limiting its overall output. What did not occur was further agricultural productivity Which could have sparked not just the total output growing but also per capita output growing. Assuming the absence of overseas conquest and foreign trade, had There been an industrial scientific revolution in China, Uh, it could have led to the development of industrial scientific inputs for agriculture that could have lifted the lid on per capita growth in China. But absent of further raises in the efficiency of agricultural productivity, China was stuck in a high-level negative equilibrium. Now, it is a high total level, but at a not growing per capita amount of GDP growth. And it can be summarized in the following way. There is high development and abundance of labor and population growth, but there is no microeconomic incentive to innovate in terms of mechanization or industrialization, but rather there is an incentive to save resources, capital and materials, And this was exacerbated by the Chinese state policy towards isolationism, which didn't allow it to overcome its resource shortage at home, let alone access to overseas markets to compensate for insufficient demand at home. If farmers were stuck with Subsistence levels of income, they didn't have sufficient demand for anything to demand or to consume over and the above subsistence consumption levels. And Elvin argues that given this background, the modern West helped quote unquote here, and this needs to be taken with a pinch of salt. Uh, helped China to break out from its trap by forcibly opening it up to international markets, uh, not least since the Treaty of Nanking and the Opium Wars. And foreign demand on world markets, suggested by Elvin, supported the growth of agricultural product industry, and brought new technology, uh, and increased competition for the Chinese domestic industries. However, as mentioned in a related earlier episode, uh, this argument of the escape of the high-level equilibrium trap to be attributable solely to foreign influence is not comprehensive and insufficient uh, because Uh, It has been shown in many other regions of the world that Western imperialism um, could have deleterious effects on the native industries with long-lasting adverse consequences for the development of the country, uh, such as uh, India, which was, if not countered eventually by national sovereignty, uh, could end up lagging behind. In terms of economic development and this was overcome in the case of china as after the foreign conquest and uh, foreign interference the national sovereignty combined with the developmental state and then subsequent big push industrialization uh, led it to resume its position as a prime member of the global economy and this type of uh, policy of national sovereignty developmental state if you like uh, adopting big push industrialization uh, was uh, also adopted in uh, successfully adopted in a lot of east asian uh, developmental states elsewhere uh, besides China. This concludes the discussion of the high level equilibrium trap hypothesis that Mark Elvin is suggesting, and there are a lot of other theories that are attributing the post 14th century homeostasis in the Chinese economy relative to the rest of the world, to other factors than the ones described by Elvin. And these can be covered in a further episode in the future.